Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 79, Klein Venedig, part two. Last episode, we talked about how Spanish activity in what is today Venezuela had largely been of an extractive rather than colonizing nature. Perlers and slavers had arrived for short periods of time, gathered their chosen resource, and then left to make a profit from those resources in their home bases elsewhere. To effort was made to develop the region, to settle it, or to improve its economic potential. This was supposed to change with the arrival of the Germans. Despite being of a different nationality, and the unusual way in which the territory had fallen into their hands, as payment for a debt. The agreement between them and the Emperor stipulated that they were to run things in more or less the same way as the other parts of the Spanish Empire in the New World. Although they were from a completely different part of Europe, and lived within a different imperial possession, the Holy Roman Empire, rather than Spain, in effect, they had the same rights and status as the Spanish conquistadors, with all of them being subjects of the same lord. They were given the right then, or perhaps the responsibility, to name a governor and an adelantero, a powerful position which each colony had, and which, depending on the colony, came with different powers, but usually involved being something like the chief judge. The emperor also stipulated that they must found two cities, with a population of at least 300 people in each, and three forts, within the first two years. This was supposed to encourage colonisation and initiate the conversion of Venezuela from an extractive frontier into a settled province like Mexico, Peru or the Caribbean islands. They were also ordered to take 50 miners with them in case gold or silver was found within the territory. There were reserves of ore in parts of Germany and so there were plenty of people who had developed skills in mining over the centuries there. The miners had to be provided by the Germans from among these experienced professionals to ensure the best chance of success. While mining is still an extractive industry, it's a lot more settled and long-lasting than slave raiding or diving for pearls. So this stipulation was also designed to help create a sense of permanence. Alongside this, there were the usual demands that a fifth of all the wealth generated was to go to the king, although according to one source I have read, it started out as a tenth and gradually went up each year until it reached a fifth, and that only the indigenous people who met the Germans with hostility were to be attacked and or enslaved. The default position should be to incorporate them into the empire as subjects. We have seen over and over again how this last order has been ignored by the conquistadors once they reach the new world, and here it would be no different. The Germans ignored pretty much every other order as well. They were bankers, not colonists, and they had no interest in establishing a well-run colony with a future. They wanted a return on their investment. They had taken this land in lieu of the hard cash the emperor had owed them and so they wanted to make that money from the land. In truth, they wanted to make much more. The emperor could revoke their right to govern at any time, and although he was unlikely to do this any time soon, this further added to their motivation to wring as much money as they could from Venezuela as quickly as possible. 
instead of turning it into an integrated colony. They continued the looting on a larger scale. While they didn't quite reach the heights of Cortes or Pizarro, the sheer efficiency with which the Germans set about looting their colony and mistreating the indigenous people in the process was perhaps worse than what their Spanish contemporaries were doing. The Germans chose Corum, one of the small transient settlements on the coast, to be their capital. They chose a man named Ambrosius Echinger as their first governor. He was 28 when he was given the title, and pretty much everyone agrees that he was among the most brutal men in the Americas at the time. Quite an achievement when you think of all of those we have met so far. It is actually quite astounding how much everyone agrees on Ehinger's nastiness, and how they put their academic objectiveness aside when talking about him. Within the books and articles I have read for this episode, he is described as hard, vigorous and cruel, and the toughest of soldiers, his breast and eyes inflamed with ambition and greed, as a heartless little despot whose only aim was to produce booty for his employers. Another said his companions were probably the most despicable that ever left Spain for America, but Ehinger was far worse than any of them. While yet another says the new governor prized neither glory nor fatherland, as did the Spaniards. For him the only important matter was that of the gold. As soon as he was convinced that mines did not exist in Venezuela, he dedicated his time to the capture of Indians to be sold as slaves. As that last quote outlines, Erlinger's job was to found their capital and look for places to mine in the surrounding area. He left his deputy in charge of Coro and set off around Lake Maracaibo, looting, enslaving and killing as he went. When he had completely circled its shoreline, he founded a new town, which he called New Nuremberg, but which later was renamed as simply Maracaibo. He then appears to have continued onwards to the west, into Colombia, and outside of the area which the Germans had actually been given jurisdiction over. While he hadn't found anywhere that could be mined for precious metals, he had managed to gather up large amounts of gold from the indigenous peoples he encountered, so much that he was unable to carry it any further. Because of this he decided to stop, and to send a small group back to Coro to deposit it. They would never make it, and the gold would be lost to the Germans. One survivor was found a couple of years later. Having become cut off from the rest of the group, he had been taken in by an indigenous village, and was living as one of them. Hellinger will not make it back to Coro. He waited a whole year for the men he had sent to return and confirm that his gold was safe in Coro. But eventually he gave up. He continued even further west, but shortly afterwards he was ambushed, and he died as the result of a poisoned arrow. With no sign of Erlinger, a new governor was appointed to take over, Nikolaus Federman. It was Federman who Erlinger had left in charge of Coro, and so he was already effectively leader. While he does not get as much bad press from historians, Federman was clearly just as ambitious, and just as willing to disobey the terms of the German charter. At this time, Pizarro was just getting ready to launch his main expedition to Peru, and having not done it yet, the geography of South America, particularly its Pacific coast, was largely unknown to Europe. The hypothesized route to the Indies 
which had driven Spaniards since Columbus, was still coveted, and although they knew that the Pacific existed, thanks to Balboa in Panama, where it lay in relation to Venezuela was unknown. News of the Colombian explorations we covered a couple of episodes ago had not reached the wider world at this point. If Federman could reach the Pacific, he could help the Germans to stake a claim to controlling it, and turn their colony from being merely extremely profitable into being almost unbelievably so. Like Erlinger, he ignored the border of Klein Venedig, and he set off westwards into Colombia. His first expedition was a failure. He went along the coast and into the arid Guajira Peninsula. Here he found it too much of a desert to do anything with. He went further with his second one. Federman was that third man I mentioned a couple of episodes back, who turned up in Bogota and agreed, along with Belalcazar and Quesada, to have their competing claims judged by the king back in Spain. We saw then that it was Quesada's claim which won out for the most part. Bogotá and northern Colombia were made part of the colony of Santa Marta. From Federman's perspective, this is not surprising, considering that his boundaries were clearly defined and he was well outside of them. Despite having achieved a great deal in reaching Bogotá, in terms of results, Federman's expedition was a failure. He did not find the Pacific, and he did not gain any new territory or riches. When the Velsas discovered that Federman was back in Madrid, when he was supposed to be governing Venezuela, they were angry, and they accused him of abandoning his post. They also accused him of failing to send back to them money which the colony had produced. He spent time in a prison in Antwerp, and much of the rest of his life was spent fighting the Vesslers in court. He never returned to the Americas. There were a couple of short-lived subsequent governors, whose reigns were either unnotable or about which little has been written, or both. After a few years, a man named Philip von Hutton was chosen to take charge. Hutton had spent time in the court of the King Emperor as a child, and he had been in Venezuela for a while. He had accompanied one of those previous governors I just mentioned on one of his small excursions into the interior. Federman's discovery that a route to the Pacific, and subsequently the Spice Islands of Asia, was blocked by the Spanish colonies in Colombia, and therefore not there to be found, meant that this motive for exploration was gone. It had, however, brought a new one. As we discussed a few episodes ago, the Spanish had already found El Dorado, or as close to it as existed, yet the rumours of a gold city were just growing and growing. Pizarro was now in Peru, and while he didn't find a gold city, he found the rich Inca Empire, with all its gold and silver. This, then, augmented the belief that El Dorado was to be found somewhere out there. A few days ago, I arrived back in Bogotá, Colombia. I'm delighted to be back in Latin America, surrounded by all the sights and sounds I love. It's been a while since I was here, though, and my Spanish has become a little rusty. Have you ever learned a language for a trip abroad, to connect with family and friends, or simply just for the fun of it? You might know what I mean. To help get me back up to scratch, I've been using Rosetta Stone. It's been perfect for this, allowing me to pick up at the level that I'm at, rather than starting from the beginning. 
and as it's available on both desktop and as an app on my phone, and lessons can be downloaded for use when not connected to the internet, I've been able to make use of time spent on planes and buses. I've already noticed a difference as I engage in conversations with locals and navigate everyday interactions in shops, restaurants and museums. Its true accent speech recognition feature has helped me to perfect my pronunciation and encouraged me to think in Spanish as well as just attempting to speak it. Over 30 years, Rosetta Stone has perfected its language learning method to create a program which is immersive, intuitive and designed to promote long-term retention. It's also great value, with its current half-price membership giving you access to 25 languages for life. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Latin American History Podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. While according to their agreement with the king, they should be exploring to find new lands to settle and farm, to hopefully discover places to mine, to found new towns, and find new subjects to convert to Christianity. Instead, it was the fruitless search for a mythical city made of gold which inspired them. Hutton decided to go in a different direction. With the southwest and west, Colombia, becoming increasingly known, he adopted to go directly south. This would take him into Los Llanos, the great flat plains which stretch between Venezuela and Colombia today. After going a short distance and reaching the edge of the Llanos, the rainy season started and he decided to wait it out. But through talking to the local indigenous people, he heard that another Spaniard had recently passed through having left from Bogotá. This man was also in search of El Dorado. Worried about missing out, he decided to risk the weather and carry on. It was slow going, and he spent a whole year making torturous progress through the waterlogged plains. Finally, he thought he'd found what he was looking for. He reached the land of the Amagua people. The Amagua are interesting. Their territory stretched into the plains from the Amazon below. Despite the rainforest in which they largely lived, they were settled into large towns, even cities. You might remember all the way back in those first episodes we did about the pre-Columbian Americas that we covered the Amazon in one episode and discussed how in recent years there has been the beginning of a radical shift in our understanding of the region's human history. In that episode, we talked about the Black Earth soil which shows evidence of being enriched by the indigenous people, and therefore of being used for large-scale farming. This, coupled with other evidence, has surprised archaeologists, historians, and the general Western perception that the Amazon has always been a pristine wilderness, whose inhabitants have always lived as hunter-gatherers. If you want to hear about that in more detail, it's episode 10 you want. Perhaps it wouldn't have been such a surprise if we had examined these early European accounts in more detail. Hudson was excited to reach the towns of the Amagua, believing initially that he had perhaps found a civilization on the level of the Inca and the home of El Dorado. He is not the only one, and others will venture into their territory in the same search. 
Some of this recent archaeological work has taken place in what was Omagua land, and the black earth has been found there, alongside evidence of these towns and of large orchards. The coming centuries won't be kind to the Omagua. Their civilization and population will be severely affected by conquest and imported disease. There are, however, still about 5,000 of them left. I don't know how much anthropological work has been done with them, to be honest. But perhaps we also wouldn't have been so surprised by the scale of pre-Columbian Amazonian society if we had just asked them how their ancestors lived. Often this information is preserved in oral folk memory. Hutton was at the northern edge of their territory, at a town named Quarica. He was taken in by the local leader and shown religious statues made from gold. His men described the size of the settlement and the vast number of streets which crossed it. They were, it seems, impressed. He was told that, as this was the edge of their civilization, even bigger towns were to be found to the south. And of course, this excited the Spanish greatly. They believed that they had hit the jackpot, a new Inca empire, and the real El Dorado. Family relations seem to have lasted only a matter of hours, however. It seems incredibly likely that the Germans would have quickly repaid this initial hospitality with violence, as had happened everywhere else in the Americas. But they weren't given the chance. The population, alarmed by the appearance of these outsiders, began arming themselves, and then they attacked. Sutton and his second-in-command were both speared, and the Germans had to make a quick retreat. Their surgeons were unsure how to safely remove the lance from Hutton's chest, and so one source I've read says that they conducted a brutal experiment. They had captured one of the Omagua, and so apparently they speared him in the same place, and then basically did the operation on him as a trial run, so that they would know how to do it on Hutton. This of course killed their test subject, but it meant that they were able to save the German. Hutton would need to recover, and so they decided to return to Coral. Here they could let him do so, and they could gather more supplies and reinforcements. They were in for a surprise when they got there. A usurper had arrived to take control of Venezuela. Sources conflict about exactly how this had come about. With Hutton being absent for so long, according to some, the Germans back in Europe had sent a new governor to take over. This man had been forced to stop in Santo Domingo, and he had sent his assistant ahead. According to another, this man had been sent directly from Santo Domingo by its governor, presumably in an attempt to bring Venezuela under the control of the Caribbean Viceroyalty. The third source doesn't really comment on this, and makes it sound like the usurper had arrived on his own account. However he got there, there appears to have been some sort of falsifying of documents, definitely at the expense of Hutton and the Germans, and possibly at the expense of the new governor in Santo Domingo. These false documents meant that when the man arrived in Coro, he was able to take control. His name was Juan de Cavajal. Well, you can probably tell by his name, he was Spanish, not German. Cavajal decided to move the capital from Coro to the newly founded settlement of Tocuyo, in the hills to the south. This is where Hutton discovered him. It turned out that Cavajal 
was a more ambitious and ruthless conquistador than Hutton, and in the resulting power struggle, he quickly won out. At first, Cavajal accepted Hutton's authority, saying that he'd thought him dead, and now that this was known not to be the case, of course Hutton was the legitimate governor. Hutton had at first taken Carvajal's men and arms away, but believing him to be acting in good faith, he returned them. When Hutton set off for Coral, Carvajal decided to pursue him and to deal with him on the empty road. Thinking that the Spaniard came in peace, Hutton stopped to greet him when he caught up, but he was quickly surrounded and killed. Also killed was one of the Velsas themselves. Bartolomeus was a junior member of the family and had been accompanying Hutton. His death was perhaps symbolic. This episode proved to be the end of German Venezuela and Velsa control. The king back in Spain was not on Carvajal's side. He ordered him executed for his disobedience. But he had had enough of German rule. The only one of the conditions he had set them, which had even partially been fulfilled, was the right to capture slaves. Of course, this was supposed to be only done if the indigenous peoples resisted and refused to become subjects, whereas in reality, the Germans had just enslaved everyone they could. All the other conditions were ignored. They had founded a few towns, but these were late and too small. No mines had been dug, and no fields had been ploughed. The king revoked the charter, and spent his own Spanish man to take control. It's not clear what the Velsa and Fuga balance sheets looked like at the end of their 18 years in control of Venezuela, although surely they would have wanted to have retained control for as long as possible. It's clear that as pragmatic businessmen, they expected this to happen at some point, and so they had squeezed as much wealth from the territory as they could, and done it as quickly as they could. And they gathered enough to recoup the equivalent of the debt plus interest from the king, which they had swapped away? And if so, had they made the large profits on top of this, which they would have hoped to have made? We don't know, but I would speculate that they had. Throughout the preceding centuries, both families had proven to be astute at business, so there's no reason to think that this venture would be any less successful than their previous ones. The two families will appear in the historical record for centuries afterwards, holding important positions in Europe and marrying important people. It's safe to say, then, that at the very least, their activities in Venezuela didn't bankrupt them. With the Germans gone and direct imperial rule established, Venezuela will finally be converted into a proper province of the Spanish Empire, and it will be run more like its neighbours. It will take time, but the new governor will start founding towns, populating the area, and building a long-term economy, which focused on development, rather than immediate, extractive profit. At some point we will return to Venezuela, and track its subsequent development. But for now, this is where this strange chapter ends. If you've enjoyed this episode, and you're feeling generous, I'd really appreciate it if you took a couple of minutes to write a quick review wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps the show grow and for new people to discover it. If you're feeling really, really generous, it is possible to make a small donation to help cover the costs of producing the podcast. There is information about how to do this and a link in the episode description. 
You can find the podcast's Facebook and Twitter pages by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. I tried to put interesting articles up on there with more information about the history of the region. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.